0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activities landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's PRI-MED.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Freeby and today I'm gonna talk to you about type two diabetes, a treatment update. So when I consult on a patient with type two diabetes in clinic, I consider a number of factors in their treatment. The first is what is the A1C goal for your patient? Before deciding on treatment, it's very important to set an A1C target. Choosing a medication for your patient may be dependent on a number of factors, including current and targeted A1C levels, A1C lowering effect medications, as well as the risk of hypoglycemia. At this time, the American Diabetes Association and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists generally recommend to target an A1C of less than 65 to 7% to reduce the risk of microvascular complications, such as blindness, kidney failure, and amputation. But setting less stringent targets may be appropriate for certain populations. These populations include those with a history of severe hypoglycemia, limited life expectancy, advanced micro or macrovascular complications, or other significant comorbidities. Historically, based on early results from the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, or UKPDS, it was suggested that lower A1C levels into a normal range might reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. Therefore, prior to 2008, many experts recommended strict glycemic control, dropping A1C levels to near normal. But more recently, results from the multiple studies published in 2008 and 2009, including the ACCORD trial, the VA diabetes trial and advanced trials, demonstrated no cardiovascular or mortality benefit in targeting A1C levels more strictly. In fact, in the ACCORD trial, Data suggested that when compared to standard treatment, targeting A1C between 7 and 7.5%, that intensive control targeting A1C of less than 6% or less increased mortality. There are no cardiovascular benefits to treating A1C aggressively. Therefore, it is no longer recommended to treat A1C to normal levels. Again, an A1C of 7% is generally a reasonable target for most patients, and based on the UK PDS, there's about a 35 to 40% increased risk for microvascular complications for every 1% A1C rise above 7%. But there are populations where less stringent goals might be recommended. As I mentioned in the ACCORD trial, patients with known cardiovascular disease may benefit to target slightly higher A1C levels. We typically recommend that patients living with coronary disease or stroke may be reasonably targeted to an A1C of less than 7.5%. Additionally, the American Diabetes Association and Endocrine Society have weighed in on the treatment of the older adult with diabetes mellitus. In 2019, the Endocrine Society recommended that people 65 years of age and older with diabetes be assessed by an overall health category and an A1C goal be set accordingly, They set two primary parameters in the decision-making process. First, they recommended to place patients into one of three groups, good, intermediate, and poor health. The specifics of each of these categories are beyond this discussion and can be found in the Endocrine Society's guidelines published by Leroyth and colleagues in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism in 2019. Additionally, the authors recommended considering whether a patient takes a medication that might cause low blood sugars. For example, insulin, or sulfonylureas such as glipizide, glimepiride, or glipiride. For those in good health and not taking a hypoglycemia inducing medication, they recommended targeting A1C levels of less than 7.5%. Whereas if this group was taking a medication that might cause a low glucose, they recommended targeting A1C no less than 7%, but up to 7.5 at its highest. For those in the intermediate health group, Depending on use of medication that can cause low glucose, the recommendation was to target A1C of less than 8% or between 7.5 and 8%. Finally, for those patients in the poor health group, the recommendation set a target A1C of less than 8.5% or between 8 and 8.5% if using a medication that causes low glucose. Although there are a few studies evaluating the effects of control on the, uh, in the older adult with diabetes, Hypoglycemia is known to cause arrhythmias and loss of consciousness with falls, a significant morbidity for patients. Therefore, the aim has been to reduce risk for significant lows. One more point that I believe is important. Raising uh, targeted glucose levels um, do not equate to letting the A1C rise to very high levels. When sugar levels rise to an equivalent A1C of 8.5% or higher, patients are at increased risk of developing polyuria and dehydration. Water loss may increase the risk of orthostasis, falls, and renal dysfunction. So next, is metformin still first-line therapy in type 2 diabetes mellitus? Despite the ever-changing landscape and recent excitement surrounding clinical trials demonstrating cardiovascular benefit in newer classes of diabetes medications, the American Diabetes Association still recommends metformin as first-line therapy in type 2 diabetes. The reasons for metformin use are well-documented it primarily impacts hepatic gluconeogenesis as well as peripheral glucose uptake and reducing sugar levels in the bloodstream. By its mechanism of action, it does not, lower, uh, does not cause low sugars. Additionally, it generally lowers A1C by about 1-2% to and leads to approximately 2-3 to kilograms of weight loss. The number one side effect is gastrointestinal. It can cause abdominal pains, bloating, diarrhea, or nausea in about 1 in 4 patients. Yet in clinical experience, starting a low dose and gently titrating up to goal over weeks reduces the side effect profile. I think it's also important to remember the extended release formulation. It is equally effective, but appears to cut GI side effects in half when compared to non-extended release formulations. Though more recently, a number of extended release brands have been recalled. And so it's important uh, for your patient to discuss using a non-recall brand with the pharmacy. And finally, although quite rare, it's important to remember metformin might increase the risk of lactic acidosis. Comorbidities that increase lactic acidosis and therefore contraindications for use included glomerular filtration rate or GFR less than 30, liver dysfunction, heart failure, heavy alcohol use, and age greater than 80 years. The last four though are relative contraindications and should be evaluated in all patients taking metformin. It's easy to overlook therapies other than medications for diabetes, but don't forget about dietary and exercise modifications. Although the Look Ahead study published in 2013 demonstrated negative results for reducing cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, there was an important and positive impact in lifestyle modifications noted in the study. The investigators evaluated over 5,000 overweight or obese patients with type 2 diabetes comparing intensive lifestyle intervention to usual care. The primary outcome was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or hospitalization for angina during a maximum follow-up of 13.5 years. The trial was stopped early due to a lack of efficacy of the intervention group on cardiovascular outcomes. Yet, there were positive results, highlighting the benefit of intensive lifestyle intervention. Weight loss in the intervention group was 6% versus 3.5% in the usual care group. The intervention group also showed benefit with improved physical fitness and lower A1C levels, likely impacting long-term microvascular risk. So how do you provide lifestyle recommendations? As a provider, you likely have little time to review this with your patient. I therefore recommend working with a diabetes educator in your community. It is well documented in multiple studies that utilizing diabetes educators is beneficial. A Cochrane database review of 11 studies, Evaluating over 1,500 patients demonstrated that group-based education improved A1c levels by approximately 1% at four to six months, um, one year, and two years. Patients also lost weight in an average of 1.6 kilograms over 12 to 14 months, and it had improved systolic blood pressure of approximately five milligrams of mercury. More important, this was not due to the extra use of medications. Patients undergoing education reduced their diabetes medication burden with a number needed to treat at five patients. So how about the new guidelines? Should we consider the heart and kidneys in type 2 diabetes treatment? Until recently, multiple groups, including the American Diabetes Association, did not specify a certain class of medications as second-line therapy. They recommended considering the strength of the A1C lowering effect, cost, patient preference, and side effect profiles, including hypoglycemia risk. The newest guidelines from the American Diabetes Association published in 2020 recommend first considering whether the patient has a high risk of or established cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease or heart failure. Multiple clinical trials have shown cardiovascular benefit with glucagon-like peptide one receptor agonists, also known as GLP interceptor agonists and sodium glucose co-transporter two or SGL two inhibitors when compared to placebo. Additionally, trials have shown benefit with heart failure and chronic kidney disease with the use of SGL-2 inhibitors. Therefore, the ADA now recommends considering these two classes of medications as add-on second-line therapies in these high-risk categories. In addition to cardiovascular and renal protective mechanisms, what other benefits and risks do we see with these medications? The geopinterceptor agonists are historically injectable medications, though it is now one recently approved for oral therapy. They work as their name suggests, as receptor agonists to GLP-1 and impact insulin and glucagon secretion in the pancreas, as well as gut motility and hunger in the brain. The most common side effects of this class of medications are gastrointestinal in nature. Clinical trials have shown that up to 40% of patients using this class of medications can experience some sort of GI-related side effects such as bloating, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or other abdominal concerns. These patients are better tolerated when a low dose is started and titrated up based on efficacy and symptoms. Historically, there has also been concern with acute pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer, but studies to date suggest this is less likely. Finally, based on early animal models, it is recommended that patients with personal or high risk of thyroid C cell tumors, such as medullary thyroid cancer, should not take this class of medications. Ongoing studies should clarify this potential risk in the future. Despite the downsides, there are benefits to this class of medications, including an average A1C reduction of approximately 0.5 to 1.5%. There's also significant weight loss. In a trial evaluating the efficacy of loraglutide for weight loss in patients with type 2 diabetes by Davies and colleagues in 2015, 1.8 milligrams of loraglutide was more effective in weight loss than placebo. Patients lost five kilograms with loraglutide versus 2.2 kilograms in the placebo arm. These medications also have minimal hypoglycemia risk Finally, as I mentioned, patients with G-operceptor agonists, when compared to placebo, were at lower risk of the primary outcome of first occurrence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. Specific medications that showed statistically significant benefit included dulaglutide, loraglutide, semaglutide, and alboglutide. While loraglutide and once-weekly exenatide also reduced all-cause mortality. The STL2 inhibitors have also demonstrated cardiorenal benefits. This class of oral medications acts by enhancing renal glucose excretion and has an average A1C reduction of approximately 0.5 to 1% in clinical trials when compared to placebo. In terms of downsides, they've been shown to increase the risk of genitourinary infections, which may lead to Fournier's gangrene, if not addressed immediately. Additionally, there appears to be a low risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, though primarily in those with lower endogenous insulin production. There may also be an increased risk of lower extremity amputation and bone fractures, though the FDA just removed the black box warning for canagliflozin in August 2020. And since these medications are diuretics by nature, it's important to evaluate and review ongoing volume status, as well as review other medications that may impact it, such as diuretics. Despite these side effects, trials have shown positive outcomes with this class of medications. First, similar to the GLP interceptor agonists, most medications within this class have demonstrated benefits and primary outcomes of first occurrence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. More recently, two areas that have shown more consistent benefit are reductions in congestive heart failure, hospitalization, and renal outcomes. And it's not just the heart, the positive renal endpoints have also been demonstrated in the empa Canvas program, Declare timi 58, and the Credence clinical tr- trials. In particular, the credence trial demonstrated a 30% reduced risk of dialysis, renal transplantation, or sustained GFR less than 15 in those with GFR levels between 30 and 90 at the start of the study. Despite these results, it will be important to consult the most recent recommendations for starting and maintaining patients on this class of medications with renal dysfunction. And although we've primarily talked about diabetes medications and their cardiovascular outcomes, don't forget about blood pressure and cholesterol. The American Heart Association recommends statins for all patients between the ages of 40 and 75 living with diabetes. Blood pressure control is also vitally important, and we typically start with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. More recently, recommendations for aspirin use have also been updated. The ASCEND trial published in 2018 showed that the use of low-dose aspirin for cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in those without a history of cardiovascular disease has both benefit and harm, and therefore we typically do not use it for primary prevention at this time. But in deciding on a medication, what other factors might we consider? What if hypoglycemia costs are issues? Earlier, we discussed concerns related to hypoglycemia in the older adult with diabetes. Older adults may be at higher risk of fall and result in fracture, or possibly an increase in heart arrhythmias or hypoglycemia. Therefore, a provider may want to consider medications that eliminate or reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. In addition to metformin, they include medi- both medication classes discussed earlier, the glp receptor agonist and the sgl 2 inhibitors. Additionally, the DPP-4 inhibitors and dione classes are alternatives. DPP-4 inhibitors are pills taken once daily with minimal side effects. They're typically weight neutral and have shown no benefit or risk in cardiovascular outcomes except with alogliptin, where it was shown in one trial to potentially increase the risk of heart failure. Most within the class require renal dose adjustment and there may be concerns related to the potential risk of joint pains. Thus far, the data surrounding pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer are mixed. The thiozolidine diomes also do not cause hypoglycemia and have been on the market for quite some time. They include both rosiglitazone and pyoglitazone. Their benefits include a strong A1C lowering effect, low cost, and reduction in stroke risk with pyoglitazone, but downsides do include weight gain, liver dysfunction, fluid retention, congestive heart failure, and increase in bone fractures in women, which was, have limited their use. There is also concern to bladder cancer with pyoglitazone, although with mixed results, and increased LDL levels with rosiglitazone. And finally, medication cost is a driving factor for many patients living with diabetes. Many of our medications with their new benefits are still brand name, but there are lower cost choices. And in addition to metformin, the sulfonylureas such as glipizide and the thiazolidinediones like pyoglitazone and rosiglitazone are available. Yet one quick word of caution with sulfonylureas. is just as a reminder, they do cause hypoglycemia and there is some weight gain that is well documented with the use of these medications. So finally, what if you're seeing discrepant data? For example, the A1C is elevated, but the patient tells you glycemic control is excellent. It is not uncommon in clinical diabetes practice to come face-to-face with competing data. Although A1C levels may be above goal, your patient may report or show excellent fasting glucose levels by glucose monitoring. This discordance may be due to a number of factors. One important issue is a mismatch between control and the fasting and control uh, and postprandial states. Additionally, the patient or glucose meter may not report accurate data. In these situations, a provider can recommend checking postprandial levels. Two hour after meals, glucose levels less than 180 milligrams per deciliter equivalent to an A1C of less than 7%. If your patient is unable to monitor or increase monitoring frequency, one can consider a Professional Continuous Glucose monitor Device, or a CGM. There are a number of technologies out on the market. They include Dexcom, Freestyle, Medtronic brands. These monitor and record sugars every one to five minutes for up to 14 days at a time with or without calibration. After use, providers can access glucose reports and food logs, which have been shown to be quite useful for review, especially when evaluating discrepant data. In the end, and my final point, if you're having difficulty in achieving control for your patient with type 2 diabetes, consider both an endocrinologist and a diabetes educator in the care of your patient. Both are likely to impact control and may ultimately reduce the risk of lifelong complications. Thank you for your time.
0: We thank you again for joining Prime Ed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primemedcom podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.